0: All right. Well, it's good to be with you. Hopefully you feel the same. My name is Alan. I'm one of the pastors here at Lighthouse. Uh, Welcome to our um, fellowship group for Young Adult Singles Praxis Ministry here. Um, Just a quick reminder, we do have um, a number you can text if you have questions uh, pertaining to our series, um, our topic of study tonight, and we will field some of those questions and answer them in a Q&A uh, that is tentatively scheduled for November. But tonight we are continuing um, our dating series. We're in part two. Um, just a quick recap, if you weren't with us last week, um, a week ago we kicked off our series by looking at 1 Corinthians 7 and what the Bible has to say about Singleness. And this was and is foundational because it's the starting line for everyone. And I don't mean that in theory or in an abstract way. It is the starting line for all of us here. You know, we may not all get married. We may not desire to date currently or even ever. But what we have in common is how we enter this world. We are born single. It'd be weird if we weren't, but anyways. In this life, we're single at least once. Uh, some of us, perhaps multiple times. But we examined in 1 Corinthians 7 that the Apostle Paul reaffirms the dignity and the legitimacy and the purpose of singleness. Far from our own opinions or what the world might claim, singleness is not some placeholder or inferior mode of existence. In fact, there is no hesitation for the Apostle Paul, forced to pick between singleness and marriage He would recommend singleness in a heartbeat. So the scriptures show that singleness is not some curse, not some divine punishment, but actually a gift from God to be stewarded. That like marriage, singleness is a station in life with unique opportunities we can leverage for God and for our spiritual good. And what was it? To secure and promote an undivided devotion to the Lord. Now, with that said, this is a dating series where we want to consider the other side of the coin, the alternative to singleness. Now, even if you have little to no interest on dating or marriage, hearing what the Bible has to say about this topic is actually profitable for us. It will enable us to interact and support the marriages within the church. Knowing God's design for marriage not only informs our own pursuit of it, but how to encourage those who are married. And so while it is right to esteem the gift of singleness, marriage is also a gift of another kind. Though different blessings, they both find their terminus, their end at the same spot. So singleness, dating, marriage, the goal for these relationships is assumed by the greatest goal of life, the glory of God. You can think of it like this. Uh, I don't know about you, but um, I kind of enjoy hiking. I'm an avid hiker. If by avid, I mean anti. Um, But my wife actually likes it, okay? So she likes a rigorous trek up a mountain. I, on the other hand, would much enjoy an escalator up if I could. That would be pretty cool. But when hiking, sometimes there are multiple paths that end up at the same lookout point. And one route is steeper, it requires hiking shoes, some skill to endure and make it. The other route is longer, but more of a leisurely stroll, more weak sauce and my cup of tea. Now, they may have their differences, but both paths eventually bring you to one peak, one point. And singleness and marriage, they are very different But for the Christian, they share the same goal, to bring us and others to this epic vista where we can behold the glory of God. Now, before we jump into the message, I want to acknowledge some popular misconceptions about marriage. So on one end of the spectrum, there are those with too low a view of marriage. These are those who argue who needs a legal document to recognize love between a couple. Or a marriage certificate, that's, all, that's just a paper to qualify for tax breaks. Marriage then is reduced to a ball and chain. Divorce is no big deal. And the statistics today back both conclusions up. That people now are getting married at a much later age than just a decade ago. And divorce, on the other hand, is more commonplace than ever before. Marriage according to this side, is just not that important. But as we will shortly see, the Apostle Paul would beg to differ. Now, on the other end of the spectrum, there are those who have too high an estimation of marriage. It is seen and regarded as ultimate, that there's this continuum from singleness to dating to engagement, and the apex, the final form, if you will, is marriage. Marriage. And in this camp, people idolize it as essential to happiness, as an absolute necessity to a fulfilling life. But as much as a blessing marriage can be, it can't complete you. It can't sustain and satisfy your soul. So a man or a woman can make a great spouse, but a terrible savior. For the Christian, though, marriage is a pointer to who is perfect for that job, for that role, Jesus. And for the Christian, then, marriage is another avenue in which we pursue, obey, and honor Christ. So let me be clear from the get-go. You were not created for marriage. You were created to love, know, and worship the one true God. That's why our series isn't primarily concerned about how our coworkers date or our culture's understanding of marriage. We are not ashamed as believers to take a distinctly Christian approach because we are distinct. We're Christians. And tonight, the Apostle Paul is going to feature the significance of marriage. We'll be in Ephesians 5, focusing on verses 31 and 32. So turn there if you haven't already in your Bibles. For the sake of context, we'll read beginning in verse 22 all the way to the end of this chapter, and then we will pray for the Lord's help. Follow along, Ephesians 5, starting in verse 22. This is the word of God. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one has ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Verse 31, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Let's pray. God, we ask for your help. Lord, we need much grace because we probably come to the table with all sorts of preconceived notions, distortions or accurate readings of what marriage is all about and we need your word to pierce through the haze that we might see what you have designed marriage to be. Father, grant us humility to receive your word that even as we struggle and wrestle with it, you'd be refining not not only our understanding of marriage, but how we are to live in light of this gift, this institution. That whether we are single today or married in the future, we would make it our aim to please you. And so use your word powerfully to equip us and grant us meekness to come in submission, trusting that you are good, you are wise, and that what you have outlined here is for our benefit. Lord, we pray that your spirit would be here to convict, to guide, to teach, and to mold us to become more and more like Christ and to handle and treat marriage with the respect and dignity that you desire. We pray these things in Christ's name, amen. Like the message on singleness last week, we're going to follow the same pattern. We're going to go from exposition to extrapolation. So we'll work our way through the text concerning what the Bible teaches about marriage before closing our time with some application for dating. First, we'll take a look at the what. The what, the union of marriage. And let's look again at verse 31. Paul writes, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. What I want you to observe first is that there's quotes around this verse. Paul is drawing from the Old Testament, showing there is history to marriage. Back to the first and quintessential verse, Genesis 2.24, as Alessandro read for us. And this is crucial. This is ground zero because this is where Jesus goes when he teaches on marriage. This is where the apostle goes. This is foundational in how we understand marriage, that it is tied to God's design in creation. That before the fall, before sin entered and marred the world, God takes a rib from the man's side, fashions it into a woman, and brings the two together. In the Garden of Eden, God officiates the first marriage ever. And he summarizes this holy matrimony with the very verse that Paul cites in Ephesians. The emphasis erupts at the end. They shall become one flesh, one flesh. Now I want you to put on your detective caps because have you ever thought about how strange this verse is in context, in Genesis? Here you have Genesis 2.24, the summary of man, father, and mother coming right after God joins who? Adam and Eve. But has that provoked you to be curious? Who's Adam's father? Who's Adam's mother? It's not a trick question. He has neither because he is the first human being created, right? Which then begs the question, logically, who's this lesson? Who's this instruction for in Genesis 2.24? I'll tell you, it's for you and for me. You see, from the very beginning, when God makes this declaration over marriage, he has us in mind. That's why Paul cites it. This verse was written for all subsequent generations, all future marriages. One flesh union is God's divine idea, his divine pattern from the garden and life thereafter. If this is, then, the definitive description for marriage, we do well to mull over what this one flesh union means. Obviously, there's a physical dimension to this. Sex is a gift from God to tangibly experience the intimate bond that exists between husband and wife. But I want to remind you, sex in marriage is but one expression of this union not the only one. In marriage, husband and wife are united in finances, sharing bank accounts, united in housing, living under the same roof. There may be extreme exceptions, but this is supposed to be the norm. And yet you would never say marriage is just about one of these things. They are expressions of union, but not the essence. God says the essence of marriage is in a deep, all-encompassing spiritual reality. In one fleshness, this new identity. And this is so elementary, it changes everything, including how we relate to others. I mean, look at how this verse begins, Genesis 2.24. When you're brought into this world, there's no relationship more foundational than the one you have with your parents. But one flesh union, marriage, It even redefines our family structures. No longer under the protection of his father or the nurturing care of his mother, man leaves his family to form his own with his wife. And this togetherness is so close. The only way to convey such intimacy is through fusion from two to one hold fast is the idea of leaving and cleaving, being bound to another individual. A marriage is fundamentally about union, about a covenant, not a contract, which challenges and corrects our modern perceptions. Because our culture views marriage, oftentimes, as a contract, that you can bail once the terms are violated or simply pay a fee and move on. Divorce is as easy as canceling your TV subscription. And sadly, marital vows today are more of a tradition than truths we uphold, truths we commit to. Hear them again, for better or for worse, in plenty and in want, joy and sorrow, sickness and health, to love and to cherish, till what? Till death do us part. That is covenant language, promises, vows you uphold despite the circumstances. Because listen, true love is only cultivated in the context of covenant, not contract. A contract is a business proposal, business transaction where commitment is tenuous and based on agreed conditions. But when the context is conditional, guess what? So is the relationship. When you can dissolve a marriage like ending a lease, there is no room for vulnerability, for weakness, for difficulty. It's just an exchange of goods as long as it's all good. But covenant, covenant is a commitment despite the circumstances. And this is the environment that actually allows love to flourish. When you are bound to another person, then love grows strong as you work through the vulnerabilities, the difficulties, the weaknesses. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a German pastor and theologian uh, during Hitler's time, and he openly opposed Hitler. Bonhoeffer was eventually arrested and executed for his resistance. But what most people don't know is while locked up in prison, Bonhoeffer was engaged. In those months leading up to his execution, Bonhoeffer and his fiancé exchanged letters, writing much about marriage. And one of his sharpest insights was when he wrote this. He's telling his fiancé, It is not your love that sustains the marriage, but the marriage that sustains your love. You see, we have it backwards. We think love is what keeps a marriage together. When in reality, it is covenant that keeps the marriage together. So love has a chance. Keeping your vows is the soil that love blossoms from. You know, infatuation is nice, but it's flimsy. Love, though, true love is learned because it's propped on something solid and robust. A contract won't hold when your spouse is on death row. Only a covenant will. Next, Paul tells us this union is unique because it is not just this one flesh um, bond, but there's more to it. It is freighted with a message. If you back up to verse 29 and 30, Paul writes, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it. Just as, so here's the parallel, here's the link, just as Christ does the church. So Paul holds forth the union of marriage as an illustration of the union between Christ and the church. The what of marriage is union, but in our second point, Paul impacts the why. And the why is often the most important thing for what we do. We transition in verse 32 then to the why, the uniqueness of marriage. Look again at verse 32. It says, this comes on the heel of the two shall become one flesh. This mystery, this union is profound. And I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Mystery. Mystery in the Bible and in our passage is less like some eerie haunted house and more like a secret made known. It's trying to guess a number between zero and a million. And so unless you get extremely lucky, you're just not going to know. There's no way of figuring it out unless someone informs you and tells you until the mystery is revealed. And here, God is giving away the secret. Marriage is more than a romantic relationship or companionship for life. There is more to the story. When God instituted marriage, there was a mystery to be revealed. And God uses the most intimate relationship between human beings to announce the most intimate relationship with him. And it is possible only through Christ. That This is the gospel message, right? That Jesus descends from the company of angels to be surrounded by livestock in his humble manger. He leaves the throne of heaven to wear eventually the crown of the cross. He sacrifices his life, absorbs the full fury of God's wrath to die in place of sinners, to redeem and ransom a people for himself. You see, Jesus demonstrates the truest love of a husband in his relentless pursuit, in his unwavering devotion to his bride, the church. And this relationship is the unabridged version of every marriage. This is the message packed into every Christian union. That's what is unique about marriage. No other relationship is afforded this privilege. Marriage alone is supposed to be the gospel in miniature. God invites husband and wife to participate in his divine storytelling. And in the weeks ahead, we'll see how husbands and wives fit into this cosmic play, if you will. They are handed different scripts. The wife is cast as the church. The husband steps in to the shoes of Jesus Christ. But tonight, we look at the finale. The uniqueness of marriage is in how the husband and wife act out eternity's greatest romance. Now, we'll deal with the ramifications shortly, but I think it's obvious. God's purpose for marriage is evident, which means to deviate from it is to only set yourself up for disaster. You know, it doesn't matter how earnest you are, how much you want to use, say, your iPhone as a spatula. If you do that, you will be left solely disappointed and with an expensive melted phone. That's just not how it works. And it doesn't matter how earnest you are, how much you want marriage to fit into your definition, your conception of it when God designed it. And if you pursue it with your own agenda and not his, you will be left sorely disappointed and even perhaps with a broken marriage because that's not how it works. Some of us need to hear this. Marriage is not God or something we can fashion as God. It cannot shoulder your huge expectations or deliver through on your deepest desire. Marriage, yes, is a tremendous blessing, but it can't bear the burden of your heart's greatest need. But it can direct you to the one who can. Jesus is the one marriage portrays because Jesus is the point of marriage. Christian, marriage is more than pooled resources or raising a family. Even non-Christians can do that. The uniqueness in the Christian marriage is in the Christian message it proclaims. That marriage is intended to be this living parable of the gospel. And that's why marriage or single, the goal is the same. Jesus Christ and the glory of his name. Okay, we've briefly considered the what and the why of marriage. Uh, Now pertaining to dating, we can camp out on the how. Okay, so this is the longest section of uh, the message. That's a warning. Um, But to continue this theme of theaters and plays, if marriage is heaven's drama performed on earthly stage, then dating, dating is kind of like an understudy for that role, okay? Our final heading, the how, dating as an understudy of marriage. Now, these application points are by no means exhaustive. We have two more messages to address other topics like gender roles. I do want to remind you, you can also text your questions in to the number for a Q&A we'll have in November. But for the remainder of our time, we'll range this section under a few subpoints. And the first and longest one is the definition of marriage defines dating and its direction. The definition of marriage defines dating and its direction. I briefly touched on this last week, but I want to dedicate more time now that we've taken a closer peek at what marriage consists of. So if marriage is this one flesh union that symbolizes, that represents the covenant relationship between Christ and the church, then dating should have some semblance of this. Here's the definition for dating we stole from Pastor David. It's a good one, so no need to reinvent the wheel. But he defines Christian dating like this. Christian dating is a mutual commitment between a Christian man and Christian woman to test their relationship for marriage. We'll slow down and consider each uh, element, but notice this is Christian dating. So I'm laying my cards on the table. That is not to deny that other people date, but to distinguish how we approach and handle dating as followers of Christ in a manner worthy of the gospel. Now, it is mutual, meaning that both parties have to be aware. You can't just tell people you're dating Selena Gomez because that would be news to her, right? She doesn't even know you exist. It takes two to tango. So if you want to date, you're going to have to go out on a limb and ask someone out. Now, is this okay to do here at church? Yeah, I mean, I think it's a better place and option than at a bar or online. It's okay to ask someone out. And so recognize that this is just part of of actually pursuing someone, that you're going to have to make yourself vulnerable and ask someone out. And it's also okay to say no. Right. It's also okay to uh, turn a person down, but in all these endeavors, we should be doing it as charitably and as graciously as possible. So, guys, you want to dignify the girl and ask in a way that is kind and gentle to remind her why she might even be attracted to you in the first place. And girls, if you should shut that down. You also want to do it in a gracious, compassionate way, that even in your rejection of the person, the guy might be reminded of why they are attracted to you in the first place. So, like, um, going on in this definition, it is a commitment. It is a commitment. So I know these days, um, from what I understand at least, you have different stages to dating, and honestly, it is very perplexing and disorienting to me, right? Uh, there's, we're interested, we're hanging out. We're going on dates, but that's different than we are dating. And somehow, boyfriend, girlfriend, that's also thrown into the mix. So I don't get why we want to overcomplicate it, nor do I understand all the rules or the rationale behind this. But I know this, if marriage is commitment, we should move as quickly and clearly as possible towards being exclusive, whether you want to call it dating, courting, boyfriend, or girlfriend. It is hard, it is very difficult to discern one flesh union when you are playing the field. Now, this dating is not only mutual commitment, it is between a Christian man and Christian woman. So if a Christian marriage is between husband and wife, then Christian dating is reserved for a man and a woman. And if Christian dating is to broadcast Christ's love for the church and the church's joyful submission to Christ, then both individuals must have Christian faith and the same spiritual foundation. Now, on one level, this is just common sense, right? You're gonna make some of the biggest life decisions together how to spend money, where to live, who to befriend, what to do with your weekends, how you will parent. What are you going to do if you don't share the same core convictions and values? How will you determine when to buy a house and where when proximity to church community is most important to you, but money is the idol of your significant other? What will you teach and say to your children when you have differing morals, when you don't see eye to eye on what's right and wrong? How about for your own Marriage? Who will you turn to for biblical wisdom, encouragement, for prayer when you're suffering? Look, I get it. You may fear loneliness because the pond is smaller when restricted to Christians only. But can you imagine the lifetime of loneliness because you're unable to fellowship over the word, to sing and declare? God's praises, to attend and sit under the teaching of Scripture together. There are very few things as messy and heartbreaking as a house divided. But more than just practical, this is also biblical. The Apostle Paul doesn't beat around the bush in 2 Corinthians 6.14. He says, do not a clear command, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawliness? Or what fellowship has light with the darkness? A yoke was this wooden beam fitted around two oxen. It would bind them together so they could pull the same weight towards one direction. But a Christian and a non-Christian are headed in completely opposite directions directions. To put it lightly, there is a conflict of interest. As Christians, the greatest commandment is to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. But that is not the ambition of a non-Christian. They are putting their entire being into something else, whatever that may be. I am guessing in a room of this size, a few of you think You can do missionary dating and lead your boyfriend or girlfriend who's not Christian to the Lord. But that's to blatantly disobey God and his word and hope for the best. Instead of obeying God, trusting he knows best. And if you think you are the exception, there's no mild way of saying this. You are presuming upon grace. You are presuming upon the wisdom of the Lord his instructions are clear. We obey and we leave the saving to him. Now, last part of the definition, to test the relationship for marriage. You see, Christian dating isn't merely to pass the time or to be able to share experiences with someone. When we are too cavalier with dating, we are doubly wasteful. We fail to steward the gift of singleness, as we examined last week, and we cheapen the gift of marriage. Now, does this mean dating should always be serious, grim, no fun? Of course not. It should include fun, laughter. It can include companionship, enjoyment of conversations, humor, but there must be a greater purpose than a short-term fix or alleviating boredom, loneliness. It is a period to test whether marriage is a real possibility. When you take an exam, there's no random or unrelated questions, right? It's not like you have a math quiz and then question number seven is, what is your favorite color? No, that doesn't happen. Because that would completely miss the point of this math test. It is to uncover your proficiency in the subject. Now, Please don't misunderstand me and create a test for your boyfriend or girlfriend to take. Just chill. My point is this. Dating is for discerning. Dating is for discernment. The question you should be regularly returning to is this. Is this relationship headed towards biblical marriage? All right, with that definition locked in, I do want to tackle something else closely related, and that's timing. You know, when should I date? Timing for when should you date and timing for when you are actually dating. So first, if dating is, in preparation, a process for marriage, then you should only enter it if marriage is actually within the realm of possibility. Some of the hardships in life, you know, whether it's terrible work-life balance, being house poor, teenage pregnancy. These situations could be avoided if we had simply refused to put ourselves in such a precarious spot. So listen, if marriage isn't on the radar for you, whether it's because it's not something you're interested in, serious about, or because you are not spiritually ready, then you probably have no business dating. You wouldn't heat the stove if you're not prepared to cook. It only exposes yourself to getting burned. But that is exactly what we do if we date when we're not ready to marry. Naturally, the longer you date someone, the more attached and tangled you become. You are binding yourself slowly to another individual, creating this web of connections that makes it harder, more painful to break off. Second, our definition for dating also impacts timing within, when you're in a dating relationship. You know, in our Christian circles, I think most would agree that dating must be for a purpose. And we know if we're conservative Bible-believing Christians that dating is a testing period for marriage. But what I have seen too often is how couples acknowledge this in theory, but they do nothing about it in practice. In the relation, there is no active discerning. There's no tangible steps in that direction. What does it look like? If you're dating, you should be able to tell someone the specific ways you are discerning your relationship and whether it's for marriage. What are the areas you are examining and thinking through? How are you actually gauging spiritual growth, both individually and as a couple? You see, when there is a purpose behind something, there ought to be a plan. So give me something concrete. It doesn't have to be detailed down to the minute and seconds of every day, but it is difficult to be sure on something as significant, as substantial as marriage when you're fuzzy in your dating. In my own two cents, when that happens, when dating is vague and stationary, that's when it gets drawn out longer than it probably should. And not only is this unwise because of the kinds of temptations it opens you up to, but it can create this loop of passivity and indecisiveness. That Before you know it, you just feel stuck in this endless cycle where it seems like you're dating just to date. You don't want things to change. Maybe, and this is a big maybe, a provocative way to think about it is this. If dating is testing, then you should not only be discerning the relationship for marriage, but you should probably, after a while, have legitimate and biblical reasons for why you're not currently married. You may not agree, and that's okay, but I want to challenge you to at least wrestle with this. Is age, career, financial stability, distance, time, a valid reason? It could be, but maybe not as well. We need to exercise wisdom for each of these variables, but the reason I bring them up is because in my experience in talking with couples, a lot of these factors are merely cover-up for comfort or unwillingness to commit, whether in marriage or ending a relationship please please hear me clearly i'm not advocating for a strict time limit on how long you should date for but i do think we need to recognize the trend that these days most people date longer rather than shorter testing testing means time is precious Successful dating is not how long you are in a relationship, but how accurately, how wisely you can discern whether this is heading for marriage and then decide one way or the other. Don't be impulsive in dating, yes. But don't be directionless either. There's more that could be said, but we need to move on. That was the longest sub-point, so don't worry. Second... Beware of covenant practices without covenant promise. Beware of covenant practices without covenant promise. I want you to picture this scene with me, okay? A guy and a girl go on a dinner date, and they are hitting it off. The ambiance is nice and intimate. The food and conversation are great. The mood is right. And after paying for the meal, the guy leans in and whispers into the girl's ears, why don't we go back to my place? an open joint banking account. That's outrageous, right? Like, what is wrong with you? None of us would entertain such a proposal. Why? Because we're not going to be united in our money without being united in marriage. And yet, yet we don't seem to have a problem with the inconsistency in other aspects of the relationship when it comes to physical intimacy. Let me be clear, sex is God's idea. He is the one who created it and he is the one who commanded it in marriage. And because he designed sex, he knows both how wonderful and how powerful it is. Fire in the fire pit is life-giving and amazing. Fire outside of the fire pit is life-threatening and destructive. So the same, God designed sex to be properly appreciated and enjoyed within the safe confines of marriage, within the bounds of a covenant marriage. Because yes, it is wonderful, but it is also powerful. You see, sex is not sheerly about physical pleasure or an outlet for our sexual appetites. It is a way to reinforce in body what is supposed to have already taken place in souls to participate in sex outside of marriage, is to send mixed messages. It is to rehearse this one flesh union when it hasn't been promised, when it hasn't been made official. Why do you think people find it so hard to break up with someone they're sleeping with, even if they know the relationship is no good? Why do you think there is a trail of devastation, damage, and heartache when couples prematurely join in body only to separate and go their own ways? The Song of Solomon warns, do not stir up or awaken love until it pleases. Look, the question is not how far is too far. The question is how pure and holy can I be? How can I love and guard another person's heart? You see the difference? One is operating out of selfishness, out of concern for one's own desire. The other places the focus on others, on God and faith, obedience to him, on selflessness and serving people. Beware of covenant practices without covenant promise. But listen, it's not just sexual intimacy we need to be wary of. I've talked with many couples who've come to a major crossroad in life, and they might be thinking about, I don't know, buying a dog together, or on a more serious note, deliberating over a job offer, whether to relocate in order to be closer to the boyfriend or girlfriend. And certainly, they should take their relationship into consideration, But when it becomes the dominant, the decisive factor, sometimes I can't help but think to myself, you're approaching this career opportunity or moving across the nation in the same way that I would as a married man. But should it be the same? Again, we need to exercise biblical wisdom. We need to consult and heed the counsel of godly influences in our lives but I think we also need to be real. What are the risks involved in changing jobs you wouldn't even consider if you weren't dating? What are the possible repercussions for uprooting yourself from home and church community to relocate yourself in an area where you are unsure of how serious the relationship is? These are just mere hypotheticals, but we need the right principles to work through these scenarios. I'm not saying dating doesn't enter The conversation. But the more our actions and decisions resemble marriage, the more I think we ought to be certain or committed in that direction. It should match up. Covenant promise without the practice is shallow and fake. But covenant practices, ones that are explicitly reserved for marriage without covenant promise, is confusing at best and foolish at worst. So what are our options? Well, there is something that's safe to practice because it's not restricted, not exclusive to marriage. Practice selfless serving. The last implication marriage has on our dating is to prepare uh, prepare individually what you will pattern together. Prepare individually what you will pattern together. The idea of relationships as covenant and not contract doesn't have to be just romantic. Ask yourself, are you a committed, reliable, and sacrificial person? Are you a person of integrity? And if you are dating, is that how you see your relationship? While dating isn't a covenant, is it more like a contract to you? An unwritten mental note in your head? That you've made these terms and conditions, and most of them are shaped by convenience and chemistry. You're searching for a person who is smart, funny, attractive to you, someone who shares all of your interests, who appreciates you as the center of the universe. Sure, we might never articulate it in this way, but is that the yardstick we're using? Dating becomes a consumeristic endeavor. And that's why dating can be deceiving. Because what we really love sometimes is a person who loves me. Again, I'm not saying that we should disregard someone's character and rush into committing to any person who claims to be a Christian. What I'm merely pointing out is how much of our dating, much of our relationships even, often flow inward instead of outward. How we're on the lookout for someone who will love and serve us instead of being occupied and seeking to love and serve others. And this is true whether you're single or dating. We've seen from this passage, there is a huge paradigm shift for how married people are to view each other, that their union is so close, they are to see their spouse as they they see themselves, as one unit, as a single entity. And though the majority of you here may not yet be in a marriage covenant, one of the best ways to prepare is to emulate that pattern now, if one flesh union is the reality, grow in giving yourself instead of being so keen on getting. Even from the previous subpoint, you serve your boyfriend or girlfriend in purity by taking initiative to protect them from sexual temptation. You serve the person you're dating by having honest and clear conversations about the state of the relationship, about life decisions, so there is no misleading. Don't be delusional. Who you are before marriage is likely who you will be in marriage. It's not like a wedding ring is endowed with magical abilities to transform the individual when they slip it on their finger. So if you are insensitive with your words and you do nothing about it, guess what? You will be insensitive with your words in marriage. If you struggle with lust now, You will continue to struggle with lust in marriage. Your selfishness will not be cured by a spouse. Instead, you will see your spouse as just another person to use to get what you need instead of someone to serve. So, what's the remedy for this? Prepare individually what you might pattern with a spouse in the future, pour yourself out for your parents for your coworkers, for your friends, for your church, for your boyfriend or girlfriend if you're dating, so that one day, if and when you are gifted a spouse, you're ready. You're ready for marriage because you have been doing what Jesus commands of all of us, to love your neighbor as yourself. Single, dating, married. This is something we are all charged to do. Now, as I wind down, I'm sure in this message, I've stepped on some toes, maybe all 10. I'm sure some of you are unhappy, annoyed, even mad. If so, you can. I invite you to send me all your hate mail at Alessandra Gonzalez <laughs> at lighthouseoutbay.org. But kidding aside, do feel free to reach out. Um, it's okay. It's honestly okay if you don't agree with everything I've said. Now, I've done my best to try to teach from the scriptures, to draw out biblical application, but I'm sure... I'm blinded at some points, that I failed at some junctures. Forgive me. You know, my words are not gospel, but God's are. There is a gravity to dating because there is a gravity to marriage. And so let's learn together. Let's continue the discussion. I don't have all the answers, but my bet is you don't either. We can humble ourselves before God's word and study it as the body of Christ. For some of you, this message has been hard to receive, not only because it's challenging, but because you feel guilty. Mistakes have been made. You've messed up in previous relationship, whether it's wasting time using people, giving in to impure desires. What I want to say to you is while dating and marriage are serious, so is God's grace. There is always hope, beloved. He doesn't just care about his precious institution of marriage. He cares about his precious children. And it's that promise marriage is meant to exhibit. That he will never leave or forsake us, no matter how much we blow it or how big we sin. That in Christ, he will be faithful to us as we strive to be faithful to him in our relationships. Look, you can't rewrite the past, but God's grace is sufficient for today. His mercies are new every morning whether we're single or married and that is what we want to showcase to the world and to one another to make much of christ let's pray lord we thank you for your word for the wisdom that is provided in the pages of scripture lord you are not silent you have spoken You have revealed yourself and you have told us what you've done. Not only in the gospel in saving us, but also in marriage that we might relate rightly. That should we be husbands and wives in the future or single, it is all with a desire to honor and please you. And so help us to approach with much humility with unity as a church, as we try to sort this out and navigate through these decisions together. Father, I pray that from this group would come good friendships, that we might be encouraged and held accountable to live in obedience to you, merit or not. Lord, we pray that we would have good discussion ahead, though some of it may be hard and sobering. I pray that you provide grace to steer us and lead us in the right direction. Oh Lord, we need uh, much grace, much help. And so we look to you and pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.